and welcome to the second edition of our Linklater's Antitrust and Foreign Investment Financial Sponsors podcast. I'm Anna Mitchell, a partner in the Antitrust and Foreign Investment Group in London, and today we're continuing to explore how recent competition and foreign investment developments impact on funds, private equity and financial sponsor clients with a deep dive into the UK's National Security and Investment Bill. I'm here with my antitrust colleagues, Verity Edgerton-Doyle and Jenny Willis, and we're joined by Claire Baker, a counsel in our investment funds team. The NSI bill, as it's known, was introduced to Parliament in November 2020, and it proposes a wide-ranging, standalone foreign investment regime in the UK. We're going to look in particular at how the proposed rules will impact financial investors, PE investors and funds. For the benefit of listeners who aren't familiar with the bill, Ferity, are you able to kick us off by explaining how the bill changes the landscape for foreign investment in the UK? Of course. Thanks, Anna. This really is a radical overhaul in the UK's approach to foreign investment screening, which will see the UK move from having one of the most permissive approaches to foreign investment in the world to one of the highest levels of scrutiny. The UK currently has no standalone regime and there's no obligation to make national security filings. But the government does have the power to intervene in transactions on certain limited public interest grounds provided that certain thresholds are met. The NSI bill, however, will introduce a standalone foreign investment screening regime with a dedicated investment security unit within Bayes to review transactions. And critically, the regime has no materiality thresholds. So to put in perspective just what a big change this is, in the 18 years of the current regime, 2003, there have been only a dozen reviews. The NSI regime is expected to lead to over 1,000 reviews a year, and on some estimates, nearly 2,000. The other important point to mention at the outset is that while the new regime is not expected to come into law until September this year, it will have retroactive effect when it comes in, and it can capture any deal that wasn't closed on the 12th of November 2020. Okay, so it sounds like this is a real sea change and something that people need to start thinking about now, even before the regime formally becomes law. Jenny, are you able to give us some insights into how the new regime will operate and what deals it will catch? Sure, thanks Anna. So like many other foreign investment regimes around the world, the bill proposes a hybrid regime, where some transactions are subject to a mandatory pre-closing notification and other transactions can be notified voluntarily. And there's a possibility of being called in for review if the government has national security concerns about the transaction. The mandatory regime will apply to certain transactions involving the acquisition of an entity or assets in certain specified sectors that are considered to be higher risk from a national security perspective. The government has specified 17 sectors in its consultation on this, including data infrastructure, artificial intelligence, energy and defence, just to name a few. For mandatory notifications, there will be serious consequences for closing a transaction without approval including the power to void a transaction, which of course would be a risk for the seller as well as the buyer. Fines can be imposed of up to 5% of a worldwide turnover or 10 million, whichever is higher. And there's also a risk of up to five years imprisonment for non-compliance with the mandatory notification obligation. So the new regime certainly has teeth. Under the voluntary aspect of the regime, parties are encouraged to notify so-called trigger events that they consider may be of interest from a national security perspective, even though they don't fall within a mandatory sector definition. And this will be accompanied by an expansive call-in mechanism to enable the government to review non-notified transactions for up to five years post-completion, 
um, although that time period is reduced to six months if the government has become aware of the transaction. Thanks, Jenny. So this bill really is a wholesale change and it has very broad jurisdictional scope, which will capture many transactions. Claire, can you tell us what reaction you've seen in the market and from clients on this? Sure. Thanks, Anna. This is a really key topic and we've had a lot of interest from clients about how the new regime will impact their investments in the UK. I should explain that my practice often focuses on the investor perspective and helping our investor clients make investments in co-mingled funds and then co-investments alongside those funds. But these issues are just as relevant for private equity firms and other financial sponsors. And so while there's particular interest from some of the sovereign wealth funds that we work with, it's clear that this will affect the whole financial sponsor market as transactions could be notifiable regardless of the identity of the purchaser. That said, while this is a big change in the UK, foreign investment screening certainly isn't new and many other countries have had regimes involving mandatory notification for a number of years. So in some respects, the UK is, is late to the party. But what that does mean is that fund sponsors and their investors have already become used to having to navigate foreign investment rules in their investment strategies and fund documents. And so we'd expect to see a lot of that practice carry over. The regime that comes up the most often is the CFIUS regime in the US, which has strict tests and was tightened last year. And as a result, we've already seen fund sponsors adapt and include necessary provisions in their fund documents. But actually, as we've all discussed before, the NSI bill has different rules and quirks in how it applies to fund investors and financial sponsors, and so that will need to be considered. Yeah, that's right, Claire. The NSI bill doesn't contain specific provisions or guidance to clarify how the regime will apply to financial investors and funds, and precisely how it will apply to the more complex fund structures is not entirely clear. At the moment, we're interpreting the bill as best we can, um, and no doubt practice will develop when it actually comes into force. But it is clear that the bill could capture a broad range of transaction structures, including those that would not typically be picked up by merger control. Yes, exactly. And how the bill will apply to minority co-investments where foreign investors have limited governance rights is one of the key concerns for our investor clients and something we've spent a long time thinking about and advising them on in the last few months. And while we have slightly bright, brighter lines for mandatory filings, the circumstances in which a deal might be called in are very broad. And Verity, we've obviously had to consider this already for some of our common clients. That's right, Claire. So for the mandatory regime, like you say, at least in theory, we have a mercifully bright line. A trigger event occurs where a person's shareholding or voting rights increases above 15% or where a person acquires 25%, 60%, 75% of votes or shares in an entity or is able to block or pass a corporate resolution. So with that first trigger of 15%, the regime obviously captures quite low-level minority stakes without additional control rights. And so that sets it at a much lower threshold than most merger control regimes. It also applies where the shareholding increases above each of those levels, even if the investor already had a stake in the business. For the voluntary regime, an even lower threshold applies for acquisitions, which can be captured where they give rise to a material influence. This material influence concept is familiar from UK merger control. And in that context, we can consider it to be triggered by acquisitions or shareholdings from starting as low as around 10%. 
And so one of the big questions we get is how we consider these thresholds where investments are made indirectly through funds. Yes, and that's a really tricky question. While the regime primarily applies to those making direct investments hitting those thresholds I mentioned, there are other rules in the bill which have implications for financial investors making acquisitions or investments through fund structures. I think it's worth highlighting a few of these. The first is that the bill contains a provision on indirect holdings, and this captures investors or acquirers investing indirectly in a target, which is subject to the mandatory regime, if the immediate acquiring entity crosses one of those trigger event thresholds and the ultimate investor has a majority stake in that entity all the way up the chain. Right, but it's not as simple as having over 50% of shares or voting rights. No, exactly. So, so it can include that, but it also includes having the right to appoint or remove a majority of the board of directors of the entity below it, and having the right to exercise or actually exercising dominant influence or control over the entity. So one of the key messages we've been delivering to clients since the NSI bill was published is that its scope is potentially broader than it may first seem. For example, another issue we sometimes encounter is where an investor client invests in a business, but through different routes. So perhaps they hold an interest through the main commingled fund, um, but then they have another interest through a co-investment vehicle investing alongside the main fund. And then they're very had to think about the complex rules that apply and how you deal with those combined interests. Yes, that's right. So the bill does contain this concept of connected persons, and this could apply to the co-investment scenario that you outlined. The concept means that where two persons or entities are connected with each other and both invest in the same target separately, whether directly or indirectly, as I just described, their interest in the target will be aggregated and both will be deemed to hold the combined interest. So it could mean that they are both subject to mandatory notification if one of the trigger event thresholds is met. For this scenario, two or more undertakings are considered to be connected if they're part of the same group and that has the same meaning as under general corporate law, so under common control. So this means that investors need to be aware that interest could be aggregated even if they're held by different entities within the group uh, or if they're held through different investment vehicles. But we always need to do a case-by-case -case analysis and it depends on the level of interest in each entity and how it's held as well as the governance rights to determine if a filing would be tripped. And then we've also spoken to our clients about the possibility of aggregating interest across different investors too. Yes, that's right. So another concept that might be relevant in this situation is that of common purpose. And this is another provision that allows the interests of two or more entities to be aggregated for the purpose of the NSI regime. What it means is that where two entities coordinate their influence on the activities, operations, or governance, or strategy of an entity, or how an asset is used, their interest could be aggregated. So this applies to even separate businesses, not necessarily those that are part of the same corporate group. And we think this could be used in a number of ways, but including to aggregate interests held by different sovereign wealth funds from the same sovereign investor. Thanks, Verity. Like you say, this is definitely something that investors will have to keep in mind. And it's not as simple as saying the direct investment by one investor falls under the threshold, so you don't need to think about it. You mentioned sovereign wealth funds. You know, I've also had questions from clients who have links to foreign states, such as sovereign wealth funds. I think it would be useful to talk about whether they are treated differently under the bill. Yeah, that's definitely an understandable concern. 
So on the face of it, no, they're not treated any differently under the bill. As the bill doesn't actually contain any concept of a foreign person or hostile actor, and it has no provisions on the identity of the acquirer, so it applies equally to UK-based acquirers, which does seem a bit odd given it's a foreign investment regime. However, in conducting its risk assessment, the government has stated that it will take into account target risk, trigger risk and acquirer risk. And here it's also worth noting that the driver for reform of the foreign investment regime was in part due to perceived concern over investments from China. So clearly the identity of the acquirer will be a key consideration for the substantive assessment of the national security risk by the government when reviewing transactions. Thanks all. Um, we, I'd like to change direction a bit. We've spoken a lot so far about the circumstances in which investors might either have a notification obligation or choose to make a voluntary notification. But I know another issue for many clients is whether their interest will be disclosable and how much information they will need to provide. So I think it's worth us spending a bit of time talking about that. Yeah, and, and that's a real concern for many of our clients. And we are having to tell them that even where they may not be the notifying party under this regime, that doesn't mean they won't need to provide information to the UK government, either as a direct obligation or because fund documents will often require them to provide information to fund sponsors in these circumstances. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, the exact form and obligations around notification remain unclear. But the government has published a draft template form on its website, which suggests that the acquirer will have to disclose details of the ultimate beneficial owner of the target post-acquisition. And this will require disclosing interests up the chain of ownership and therefore could potentially capture indirect and minority investors and funds. So even where an investor doesn't have a direct notification obligation itself in relation to an investment, it may be that its interest will still need to be disclosed in the notification that's submitted by the relevant acquiring entity. And of course, this might be problematic for some investors. Yeah, and I think this is an issue we already deal with in fund documents in relation to other kind of legal, regulatory and similar filings. Um, and we're increasingly seeing an obligation to cooperate with this kind of process imposed as a requirement in fund documents. And it's likely to be especially relevant where investors' interests may be more sensitive for example, sovereign wealth fund. That's interesting. And what else are you seeing in fund documents as foreign investment scrutiny has stepped up over the past year? Well, it's not new and it's not limited to the last year, but fund sponsors will often include provisions that allow them to exclude investors from certain investment opportunities. And the provisions are broad enough to typically cover a scenario where there might be um, foreign direct investment concerns. Um, and historically, investors have generally accepted these provisions, but I expect that there might be more questions around them in the future as we see the increasing impact of foreign investment regimes, particularly the new regime in the UK. And then there's the usual provisions around requiring information and disclosure of information to enable the relevant filings to be made. And again, we expect that some of our investor clients might be refocusing on these through the uh, foreign investment lens. And of course, on UK specific issues, and particularly in the context of co-investments, um, we need to consider the investment documents and the transaction documents um, to consider what, if any, CPs are required. Um, it's a case-by-case -case assessment, and we always work closely with our colleagues in your team to identify such requirements on the foreign investment or merger, con merger control front early. Um, and obviously, where we do identify these obligations, we need to factor this into the transaction timetable. 
<laughs> but I feel like we might be identifying an NSI CP, an increasing number of our deals. I think you're right on that one, and I definitely agree with you. Um, so thanks so much, Claire, Verity, and Jenny, for sharing your insights on this. With the bill expected to be enacted into legislation in autumn of this year, we'll be keeping a close eye on developments and we'll be looking out for any amendments or guidance from the government. If you have any questions, then please do get in touch with one of us in the antitrust and bond investment team here at Linklaters. And also please do tune into our next podcast where we'll discuss the impact of the Biden administration on private equity. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Thank you.